Hey now, and happy Thanksgiving. We are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 373 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again, and it is Thursday. It is also Turkey Day, so this year, you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened this week across AEW and NXT because this is indeed a holiday episode. The Silver King is not going to waste time here on the intro. Let me quickly remind you, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast So please be thankful for the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please hit us up with that five-star rating on Apple. Take a few moments here on your turkey day, perhaps on Black Friday, maybe even over the weekend, and leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. Let everyone know how much you love the show, why you are thankful for the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, and tell them why they should subscribe. The ratings and reviews are super helpful. And if you leave a five-star review, we will read it live right here on the podcast. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, wrestling news, fun stuff all week long. But it's particularly important that you follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast during pay-per-view and premium live event weeks of which we are in one right now, WWE Survivor Series War Games. We will have a live pre-show Saturday on Twitter Spaces. We will also have pre- and post-show polls that you can vote in to let us know your expectation and final grades for WWE Survivor Series War Games. Every reason in the world to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. On that note, before we get into today's show, a reminder that we have a WWE Survivor Series War Games Ultimate Preview Already in the feed for this week, breaking down every single match on the card with predictions and analysis of what may happen in WWE going forward. And Saturday, as soon as Survivor Series War Games goes off the air, we will be back with an instant analysis podcast. So if you're listening to us for the first time, please do not forget to subscribe and join us for that instant analysis episode. According to our listeners, the Getting Overheads, their favorite type of episode that we do the instant analysis for pay-per-views and premium live events. Okay, folks, enough of that. Let's get into today's show. We're talking AEW, the fallout from full year. We're also talking NXT as it builds to deadline. Dynamite and NXT this week, I thought both gave us extremely strong episodes. Dynamite had a great opening segment and two banger matches, but where I thought it lacked was the actual fallout from Full Gear. We'll explain more of that in a moment. But there were four or five storylines where they basically just said to fans, eh, wait till next week, we'll get there. And it's just like, well, no, I I tuned in because I want immediate follow-up from your pay-per-view. So I did think they missed the mark there. That did suck. But the two hours of Dynamite was extremely entertaining. Rampage last week, one of the better episodes of Rampage, not a total waste of time. So I somewhat enjoyed watching that as well. NXT this week had a couple quality matches, but only the main event, I would say, reached the same level as what we got from those matches on Dynamite, and still not even to that level, but still a very good and entertaining match. But what NXT put forward was a lot of character and storyline development leading into Deadline. Both shows, NXT on Tuesday, Dynamite on Wednesday, the two hours for me completely flew by, and I thought it may be the best combined week of Dynamite and NXT that we've gotten in quite some time. And for both shows to be live and for it to be on a holiday week, 
I found that to be extremely impressive. Now, the way we, of course, break things down here on this episode is we talk about one brand and then the other. So because of that, we have timestamps in our episode description. So if you're only here to listen to AEW or only here to listen to NXT, hit the description. You'll find out where to jump to. But it's a short episode, so I hope you listen to the entire thing as always. This week, we are going to open up with AEW given they are coming off their final pay-per-view of the year, Full Gear And let's get to that right now. So Dynamite opened up with William Regal in the ring asking fans if they wanted to hear from their new champion only to pull the heel antic of saying MJF is too good for Chicago and would speak live next week. And this is exactly what I was talking about on the WWE episode. You have a heel come out and do something like this. You don't have your babyface women's champion, Bianca Belair, say, we'll let you know the fifth woman of our team this Friday on SmackDown. You don't do that because they're going to get booed. And that's exactly what happened to William Regal here. It was an interesting dichotomy too, because the fans were cheering when MJF was mentioned, but then chanted Regal sucks and fuck you Regal to the guy who helped MJF win the title that they're so excited about. So, you know, how do you really put that together, right? If you're a fan, Uh, the only other thing I'm going to say just before we move on, and I've said this before, I like the passion of the AEW fans. I like that it's more of a demographic that fits, you know, me as a, uh, I I was gonna, I guess I'm middle-aged man. That kind of sucks to kind of say that, but 18 to 49 male demographic, right? It's going to be slightly more vocal, a little bit more adult, but it's really enough for me, even just as a viewer. And I'm, I'm someone who curses very occasionally on this show, but very frequently in my real life. It's enough for me, the F U chance and the F chance in AEW. It's like, can you not be more creative than just saying fuck, I feel like you can. It's, Regal called it uncouth. It kind of was, I gotta be honest, he was right. And if I'm a heel for thinking that, okay, fine, but you can do better than F you. How about come up with something really unique and chant it at these people? So I don't know, to me, it's just bottom basement level chanting. It's stuff that you used to get in ECW that you get on the indies. AEW, it's a class, it should be a classier product. Maybe do better than that. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, Regal said he emailed MJF a couple weeks ago. Uh, This was, I guess, going to begin explaining, you know, the situation of what happened here. When John Moxley entered, uh, clearly ready to attack Regal, Brian Danielson physically intercepted him in the ring. Brian said they've all done bad things in their careers, but Regal has a bad neck and a bad brain, so Mox can't touch him. Mox kept pushing, so Brian slapped him. Then he apologized to Mox, got on his knees and begged him not to hurt Regal. Danielson told some story about Regal helping him understand his own dad's struggles and how that could apply to Mox and his daughter. And then Mox eventually relented, but he only relented because he got into Regal's face and he demanded he run away and never come back. So there was no resolution beyond that. So it was a really hot segment. The crowd was rocking. Was it a good enough way to follow up MJF's title win? No, it wasn't. Movie shooting schedule or not, and that's the excuse that Regal gave, Tony Khan is a billionaire with a private jet, probably multiple private jets. You can't tell me that they couldn't fly MJF's ass in for one segment and then fly him out. It's absurd that this guy who won the world title to a massive reaction in the main event of a pay-per-view was not on the show immediately after that pay-per-view. Now that said, credit to this being as good as possible without him there, but it was largely the crowd that made this so great. They were on fire. There was some good character development with all three guys. The storyline made complete sense in terms of Brian coming out to stop Mox from hurting Regal and so on and so forth. But MJF not being there 
was kind of silly. However, did this potentially work as a way to get Regal out of the picture? We'll talk about that in a second. Yes. But what about with Mox? MJF is going to be back next week. So if Mox is so angry, we would assume he's going to be back next week. Except the entire thing that we've been told is that Mox delayed this vacation so that he could be champion for AEW because of everything that happened with CM Punk. And now, presumably, he needs to go on his vacation. So uh, is that going to happen as soon as next week? Are they perhaps going to wait until after winter is coming and then Mox goes on an extended vacation? I think those are definite possibilities. Now, again, let's talk about Regal because there's obviously a consideration here. And that is that this segment seemed to me to be a purposeful way to write Regal off of television and or out of the company. Brian was saying how much he loves him. Mox stared him down, told him to never to come back. And Regal left. So let's remember a couple things. Number one, Regal dealt with a serious health issue that kept him away from NXT not that long ago. So it could potentially, and unfortunately, if that's the case, obviously, have something to do with that. It may also be Regal simply wanting to go back to WWE, given his son is there, he's Charlie Dempsey in NXT, and Triple H is obviously in charge now. And when Regal got canned, it wasn't with Triple H in charge. In fact, it happened in a very short window before that transition. If that's the case, though, they could have still done Regal in the opening segment and then MJF at the nine o'clock hour or in the main event or something like that. It may also be nothing other than this Von Eric movie shooting and MJF needing to be there, just like Regal said. But no matter the circumstances, MJF should have been there and the movie is not a legitimate reason for that not to happen. If this was entirely a ratings ploy to get people watching this show and then say, oh no, MJF will be there next week, then that's just dumb. It was unacceptable for him to not be on this show. But that doesn't really change that this segment in a vacuum was super entertaining and well executed. Uh, we had an eliminator match on Dynamite, Ricky Starks against Ethan Page. Starks' entire upper body was wrapped up. He hit a spear but couldn't cover. Stokely Hathaway later got ejected. Starks hit a superplex he also could not follow up. They countered Rochambeau and Eagle's Edge back and forth with Starks hitting two more spears for the 1-2-3 to win. So this fit exactly into the expectation we discussed of a heel MJF winning the title and a babyface Starks becoming his first challenger. And that's exactly the right move. Something I didn't love about this match is how Starks was selling his injuries, yet he didn't work from under. He got a majority of the offense throughout, and then he goes from not being able to cover on the spear initially and not being able to cover on a superplex later to just hitting two spears and covering without any issue. That didn't really line up for me. It should have been a lot more of an underdog win than it was. But it was strong overall, and the promo battles between MJF and Starks, those are going to be fantastic on the way to Winter is Coming. We also had Death Triangle against the Elite in a best of seven series. This was the second match. The first match was for the title uh, at AEW Full Gear. This one was not, and we'll discuss that in a little bit. But they're doing the best of seven series, and this was the second of potentially seven matches. The crowd seemed pro CM Punk when the Elite entered, which is to be expected in Chicago. Pac wore a face mask for a broken nose. It was clarified after the bell that the titles will only be retained or changed when a team wins its fourth match. So the first match was for the title, but now every ensuing match is not until someone wins the fourth. And whenever that occurs, that team will be the champions. Very convoluted if you ask me. Ray Phoenix caught Kenny Omega running for a tope with a cutter, then did a really sick tornillo outside. There was a full row of like Mexican fans right in the front across from the Hardicam that was awesome during this, cheering on the Lucha Bros and Death Triangle. 
Omega bit Pac's arm, which was hysterical. Uh, Phoenix later used Matt Jackson to help him to the top rope so he could hit Nick on a hurricanrana in a crazy spot. The Elite ripped Pac's mask off and hit a triple super kick. Nick then did an Escalera flip to take out the Lucha Bros. Omega hit Pac with a V-trigger, but he escaped One-Winged Angel with Omega hitting a GTS instead for a 2.99 false finish. The crowd went wild for that. Phoenix hit a Tope Suicida Cannonball. Matt low-blowed Pac with a Mule Kick and then called for the Bellhammer, so the Elite were clearly working heels in this match. But Pentagon pulled one out of his own pants and hit Matt in the head with Pac covering for the 1-2-3 as the champions went up 2-0 to a huge ovation. Phoenix, after the match, was angry that Penta used the hammer, and Death Triangle argued with Pac defending Penta, and obviously them still trying to get Phoenix to turn heel. So there's a lot to note about this match. First, there was actually consistent tagging on the elite side, just not the other side. So half credit there for that. Phoenix was the easy MVP. This guy is not a human being. I don't know what he is. He is not human. He's from another world. It's insane, some of the shit that this guy does. Omega was incredible in his own right, particularly with the brawl out references, biting Pac's arm, hitting CM Punk's GTS. There was also a purposeful failed buckshot lariat attempt during one of the bucks during the commercial break. Just great tongue in cheek stuff the entire time and doing it all in Chicago was particularly great. The heel face dynamics switched given the locations. I thought that was interesting. And the finish was nails with the double hammer spot and Phoenix still not being okay with it. I went 4.5 stars and an A. This was a blast. It was just a ton of fun. And regarding the best of seven stipulation, I still believe it's too much. This was best of five. I think that would play a lot better. But you know what? So far, match-wise, they're two for two. And I know he said, hey, if they just put on the same match every single time, we're going to get tired of it. That may still happen. But through two matches, I'm not tired of it yet. Uh, Jamie Hayter and Britt Baker fought Ty J and then Willow Nightingale and Sky Blue in a triple threat tag team match. Renee Paquette announced that AEW and Thunder Rosa came to an agreement on her relinquishing the title due to injury, making Hater not the interim champion, but the official women's champion. For some reason, it took 10 more minutes for Excalibur to ex- explain that Tony Storm's reign was also made legitimate instead of being interim, and this was done retroactively. The shitty thing is this could have gone down last week to amp up the show and legitimize Storm. After this announcement, Hater tried to speak, but allowed Baker to basically steal the moment from her. So apparently that's going to be the storyline that builds to their eventual match. Britt Baker probably turning further heel or Jamie Hater smartening up as a babyface against Baker. They'll fight for the title. It's just weird that they're going to do that with Hater already as champion. Regarding the match, nearly the entire thing was during a commercial break. Sky hit a code blue, but Baker caught her with a super kick, Hater hit her backbreaker, and Baker hit a curb stomp for the win. It's really tough to get excited about women's wrestling when you barely see the wrestling. Simple as that. Uh, on Dynamite, we had a Ring of Honor championship match. This was the main event. Chris Jericho against Tomohiro Ishii. Jericho's chest got opened up hard away from Ishii's chops. It must have got like caught with a nail or something like that. It was gory as hell, but it was real, which made it okay in my book. Ishii kicked out. Uh, at one after a lion salt, Jericho came back with a code breaker for a 2.5. Ishii blocked Judas Effect, countering with a headbutt and basement lariat. Ishii came back with a code breaker himself in an awesome moment. Then he hit a lariat for a false finish. Jericho locked in walls of Jericho, adjusted it, then moved into the lion tamer for extra leverage. Ishii flicked him off while he was in the submission. And then Jericho, when he countered, or when he uh, transitioned, I should say, from walls of Jericho into the lion tamer, put extra leverage on his shoulders and and neck and and face. 
and Ishii tapped out while simultaneously flicking Jericho off with the middle finger. Jericho immediately ran up to commentary again to attack the Ring of Honor announcer when Claudio Castanoli caught him from behind with a punch. Everything I thought was running super hot here until they ended it by continuing JAS and BCC. Well, at least the Jericho-Claudio aspect of it. Uh, Although maybe it'll end after that. But if we ignore that part, this match was a banger. Uh, Ishii is one of my favorite wrestlers, as is Jericho. Uh, Jericho, you know, being on the other side of 50 at this point, putting on matches like this, it just, it's exceeding expectations, as simple as that. They hit every note for an intense match with basically no storyline going into it. The finish was phenomenal with the code breaker and the lion tamer transition. I loved it. Uh, 4.25 stars and an A. Two really, really good high quality A matches on Dynamite. Uh, We had Swerve approach Keith Lee backstage with Lee fuming and demanding that Swerve choose his words wisely. Swerve covered the camera because he wanted to talk in private. I thought this was a cool and different way to like follow up a tag team split without them just immediately going at each other's throats. My only issue is that it's the second storyline on this show. And again, two of four or five that we're going to talk about where AEW's booking was basically, nah, let's wait until the next episode to talk about this. Uh, The acclaimed came out. Uh, Max Caster had his worst rap in months. He's actually been nailing it recently. They ran through their signatures when Jay Lethal's crew interrupted on the big screen. Jeff Jarrett told them to watch their backs. The crowd chanted TNA sucked. Now that's a creative chant. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, Billy Gunn interrupted so they could all scissor. And that was literally the entire segment. Are they going to feud with Lethal and Jarrett? Are Lethal and Jarrett coming out of a tag team loss going to get a title match? What are we doing here? This is fucking ridiculous. The acclaimed are like new age outlaws level of over right now in terms of all their phrases hitting, their intro. It's very similar. Obviously, Billy Gunn is there. That's great. But nearly all of their in-ring segments are just about getting fans to pop through their signatures and like nothing else happening. They've been involved in really shitty feuds with the exception of the rubber match which with Swerve in Our Glory, which guess what? Was a lot more about Swerve in Our Glory breaking up than it was about the acclaimed. I'm not saying that they're botching the title reign or anything like that because they're over like Rover, but they're not doing their best right now, AEW, by the acclaimed to get them over as like believable, legitimate champions. They're just guys who the fans like a lot. And there is a difference between those two things. On Dynamite, FTR and Top Flight spoke backstage. Dax Harwood said he's rooting for the younger guys. Top Flight asked for a dream match with the Ring of Honor titles on the line this Friday on Rampage. I thought it was a nice, simple match setup, and it probably will be a pretty damn good match because guess what? They're two really good tag teams. Wardlow talked about watching footage of the full gear match back because he didn't realize how it finished given he was knocked out by the TNT title. He called himself the real TNT champion. This was the third storyline where there was just no actual follow-up to full gear. Wardlow's like, yeah, I saw what happened and I want my title back. Well, no shit, we, we, we know that. We know that's what you want. On Rampage, there was another House of Black vignette uh, showing all the members kicking the crap out of jobbers in an empty gym. As with the other ones, I thought it was eye-catching and really well-produced. On Dynamite, we had an All-Atlantic Championship match, Orange Cassidy defending against Jake Hager. Half of this match was about Hager's purple bucket hat. Orange turned a Casadora into a tight rollover pinning combination to retain the championship. Better than I thought it was going to be, but Orange is rolling pretty well right now in the ring, so not really a surprise. The factory surrounded the ring after the bell, but QT Marshall's microphone and the lights all went out. Julia Hart appeared on the stage with a red light and smoke as House of Black showed up in the ring to clear out best friends. Fans cheered the return despite them beating up the faces, and then they obliterated the factory to show they're actually tweeners, they're not faces or gills. They also beat up some security guards and jobbers with Brody King 
hitting Dante's Inferno on one of the jobbers. Malachi Black then told fans to rise and the lights went out. Thought it was a really hot return. The only way it could have been better is if it was against a group that actually mattered. But all three guys looked great. Buddy Matthews legitimately looked twice his normal size. The guy was yoked out of his mind. On Dynamite, footage was shown of Jade Cargill and Bow Wow. Yes, Bow Wow of Lil Bow Wow fame. uh, Getting heated at a confrontation in Miami. Jade said the baddies would have a celebration for her next week. Mark Sterling came out. Now he's the lawyer, but he's not involved in the rest of her shit. He said Cargill had no comment on the incident. Red Velvet was back and Sterling got Kiara Hogan to sign her pink slip, basically. Another Jade segment where nothing significant happens. I do find it comical how AEW, they have to have some agreement with a record label or a representation for all these rappers that were popular like 15 years ago, because those are the people that we're seeing show up on AEW television. I just think that's really funny. I am a hip hop head. It's my favorite type of music. And even I find it like, well, when were these people last relevant? And Bow Wow, certainly not relevant. On Rampage, Athena fought Madison Rain. Before the match, Rain had a taped promo saying she didn't like the way Athena's been delivering extra beatings to her opponents after the bell recently. I had no idea this was happening because guess what? None of it was happening on television. Rain countered a vertical suplex into a falling cutter that literally got no reaction from the crowd. Athena countered Cross Rain into a flip over stunner, adding a really nasty diving lariat, and then a rotating code breaker out of a flatliner position for the win. Athena then kicked Rain after the bell, straight up punched Aubrey Edwards in the face, and locked Rain in a cross face. That led Mercedes Martinez out for a quick face off. Athena looked awesome here. Her moveset was refreshed, she was super fluid in the ring. Her aggression was different than what we're used to seeing from her. I actually couldn't take my eyes off the match, even though it was clunky because Rain is just not really working well anymore. But none of that was Athena's fault. Imagine having Athena on your roster and doing nothing with her all these months and not telling this story on TV when she could have been doing this every other week on Rampage or Dynamite. And then you have her punch an official in the face and there's no follow-up on Dynamite. How is that possible? What sense in the world does that make? You don't even show this, that Athena is gonna have punishment handed down this Friday on Rampage. Like, I I just couldn't believe what I was seeing here. Uh, On Rampage, we had an FTW title match, Hook versus Lee Moriarty. Hook dominated until Stokely Hathaway distracted. Almost all of Moriarty's offense came during the commercial break. Hook hit a fisherman's throw, Moriarty dropped a knee and attempted a cross-face stretch, but Hook countered into Red Rum for the win in eight minutes and 30 seconds. This was Hook's best match by a mile, but it was also twice the length of his next longest match. Many of the problems we've discussed are still here, but I did think it was a nice presentation. And last on Rampage, John Silver laughed at costing Roosh a title opportunity with Jose pointing out at least 10, Preston Vance, was serious about professional wrestling. Jose issued a tag team challenge, which Silver immediately accepted, but 10 denied him and walked away before Roosh got in Silver's face, talking trash in Spanish. So I thought it was going to be a singles match instead, but best I can tell, because they taped Rampage, and I'm not giving away spoilers, it looks like it was a six man instead. So they went from not doing a tag team match to it pretty clearly being a singles match to instead doing a six man match. Maybe they explain it Friday. I guess we'll find out. So that was it from uh, AEW this week. Again, I thought Dynamite was a really solid two hours. Didn't really feel like two hours watching professional wrestling. Rampage, there was some good, most of it. I talked about 
uh, during the incident analysis for Full Gear because it had to do with some of the matches on that show. I really liked what we saw from Athena. I hate that there was no follow-up. Rampage just, again, does not feel important. Dynamite, though, certainly did. And, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what we get from AEW television uh, this coming week because there's a lot of things that I'm curious about, including those four or five storylines from Full Gear that they just chose not to follow up on. That was my low point, my um, major criticism overall for Dynamite. So with that, let's move over to NXT. We got plenty to talk about here as well as they continue building for NXT deadline, which is December 10th, only a few weeks away. Uh, Tony D'Angelo taunted Wes Lee in the parking lot, blaming him for his knee injury. Wes said when he's done with Carmelo Hayes, D'Angelo knows where to find him. Trick Williams later boasted on behalf of Mello backstage. Wesley tricked Trick into saying Mello was so good, he didn't actually need Williams by his side, indicating it would be a one-on-one match without distraction or interference. This was probably the first time they've let Wesley look smart, and Trick played his part incredibly well. Mello was later shown parting from Trick backstage as D'Angelo watched Wesley walk to gorilla position. So we got the North American Championship, Wesley against Carmelo Hayes. This was the main event. Wesley got a new entrance with him climbing over a boulder and rising like a phoenix. Mello hit a springboard clothesline and toyed with Lee, kicking him in the head while on the mat. Wes hit some great running strikes and a spike hurricanrana. Mello avoided a 450 and got a couple near falls. He hit a code breaker, but Wesley avoided a flying leg drop and hit a meteora for a 2.8. Trick came down after a heel kick sent Mello outside, so Wes just took them out with a tope. Lee then did this really absurdly awesome double backflip heel kick that landed perfectly And then he hit a Mishinoku driver for the 1-2-3 to retain the title in 12 minutes. After the bell, a graphic gate opened like on the Titantron and then it shut when suddenly Dijak, called Dijak, appeared behind Wesley wearing all black with dyed hair. Unfortunately, they botched his Feast Your Eyes finisher and that was the end of the show, the post-match attack. First of all, the match was a banger. No surprise, Wesley and Mello were great together once again. The Mishinoku driver being the finish when it's not established as one of Wesley's moves, I thought was kind of underwhelming, especially when it doesn't take advantage of his athleticism. Though the double backflip heel kick that preceded it was awesome, as I said. I went 3.75 stars and a B plus for the match. It really needed another seven to 10 minutes to reach that next level. And I don't know why they didn't give it the time when they were basically writing Mello off from the North American championship picture and establishing Wesley. So it just didn't make sense why this did not get 15, 20 minutes on the show, which it absolutely should have. But credit to the booking because Wesley went over squeaky clean. There was no BS about it. And this did help establish him to some degree. The Dijak return, I saw some people loving it. I thought it was kind of unfortunate. The graphic on the big screen was silly. The dye in his hair and his facial hair was obvious. His look was more like like 1995 Diesel with the black and the silver like she, it's almost like he should have been in one of those like Terminator movies as a villain or something like that. Meaning the point of me saying that this was a three decades old style and then them botching Feast Your Eyes was rough. That's not even a really good finisher anyway. If you're coming back with a new look and a new name and all that type of shit, you should probably have a new finisher as well. It just really doesn't work. It takes a lot of time to set up. And again, they botched the move. That sucked. Now, all of this can be refined and repaired in short order. We've seen a lot of people return or debut and then have their look and gimmick changed over time. And I hope that's what happens here. Having Dijak go after the North American Championship immediately when Wesley just won it, it feels like he's going to drop it after one defense. 
That's unfortunate. It also feels completely unnecessary. He could have feuded with Von Wagner first. He could have feuded, you know, with a number of other larger men, uh, Zion Quinn, other people. Get over them and then go after the North American Championship. I don't understand why they're doing this. So the booking isn't what I would do. So for me, it wasn't a debut that raises hopes, but it certainly didn't dash them either. He's no longer T-Bar. He looks to be in great shape. And this is by far the best gimmick he's had in WWE, which is really not saying much given his other gimmicks were T-Bar and Donovan Dijakovic and everything that went with that gimmick, which wasn't good. It was problematic. Also, apparently this guy in NXT hates wrestlers named Lee because first it was Keith Lee, now it's Wesley. So I wasn't overly optimistic about the Dijak return, but you know, again, they can fix it very quickly as we've seen. Sometimes they do it fast. Sometimes it takes a while. I'm glad he's back. Um, I'm glad he has a gimmick that's better than his other two gimmicks. So those are positives. Apollo Crews returned to the diner from his very first vignette, reminiscing over his six months in NXT while simultaneously updating his journal. Crews' vision this time showed him holding the NXT title. These have definitely like improved the modicum over the last couple of months, but the general gimmick with Crews, it irks me massively. Braun Breaker got a video package showing him fishing, which he said he does after all his big matches and wins. Breaker said he's just another fisherman when he's out on the water, which is an escape for him now that the pressure of being a long-reigning champion is weighing even heavier on his shoulders. He said Cruz is next to deadline, so that match was booked. And once he retains his title, he'll be right back out on the water. It's honestly crazy to me that it took this guy holding the championship for basically 300 days for NXT to give us a look at his personality that doesn't have to do with being a member of the Steiner family. This was really well done. And Braun did come across as an everyman despite his dominance in the ring. We've mentioned Cruz being a legitimate transitional champion given he has main roster bona fides already. So this could be setting up Breaker to lose the title and then have this type of angle after the fact. Now we'll save an official prediction for deadline uh, because there's still three weeks left and we're gonna see how this all builds. But I loved what they gave us with Breaker and it just shocks me that they have done nothing like this previously with the champion. And they spend so much time doing this for so many other people on the NXT roster. Grayson Waller approached Duke Hudson backstage asking what his angle is in joining Chase U. Hudson disputed that he had an angle, saying he bled red and black. Later, other Chase U students, including Thea Hale, asked Hudson for his help. Uh, and basically it was it turned out that he helped tutor them and, and help them get good grades. Pretty Deadly proposed Hudson serving as a ringer in their upcoming poker game. I thought it was funny that they called back to that, but he declined because gambling is against university policy at Chase U. They started insulting him, so he attacked them one-on-two until they got separated. Chase later sold his injuries in Andre Chase's office, saying he worked the attack into a tag team title match for them. Chase was concerned at first and then obviously thrilled, telling the student to get the fuck out of his office, which of course was funny. Random as hell start with Waller, but when you think about it, and they're both countrymen, and they probably know each other from wrestling circuits and all that, it made a lot of sense, and... Then moving to Pretty Deadly and then creating an unannounced championship match all on one show. I mean, it was kind of convoluted, but hell if it wasn't interesting, it definitely was. Hudson has been completely rejuvenated with this storyline. The pop from the crowd when he told Chase they got a title match off screen was legitimate. I'm glad the whole thing's working. And it's just really smart for one heel to walk up to another and be like, yo man, heel the heel. Like, What's this bullshit game you're playing? It's just funny the way they, that they uh, executed this entire thing. I loved it, all of it, the setup. 
Then we got the tag team championship match. Pretty deadly against Chase and Hudson. Chase kicked ass on his own to start. Elton Prince accidentally laid out Thea Hale when he got thrown out of the ring. Hudson went to check on her and missed a tag. Chase kicked out at an assisted gutbuster. Hudson cleaned house on a hot tag and even body slammed Chase into Prince. Hudson then forced tagged Chase, who was gassed out and not ready. It led to Hudson accidentally booting Chase in the face. Prince then threw Hudson into the steel steps and hit spilt milk on Chase to retain the titles in 12 minutes. After the bell, Chase stared daggers into the back of Hudson's head while they were walking backstage. I didn't expect these four to work at this kind of pace, but it was nonstop action after the commercial break. And the finish was great. It allows us to continue speculating over whether Hudson is actually bought into Chase U or if he's playing some type of game. Maybe he is really bought in, but Chase now has his own doubts and he's questioning himself. The whole thing's really well done. Very intriguing storyline. Zoe Stark fought Sol Rucka. Uh, Stark baited Rucka with an injury and then super kicked her. Then she baited her outside and caught her in the apron for a beating. Stark sold nicely for Rucka throughout, including on a power slam late in the match. But Stark caught her off a missed splash with a basement claymore kind of move and got the win in five minutes. Stark went on to attack when Nikita Lyons made the save with much improved gear. Uh, Stark eventually ducked out of the ring. It's tough not to compare Rucka to Tiffany Stratton, but Rucka's improving in the ring at basically the same pace that Stratton did previously. It's really impressive to see. And by the way, I have no idea where Stratton is, but she's badly wanted back. Let me put it that way. Uh, Stark did a great job also selling for Rucka while clearly looking like the more talented and veteran wrestler. The post-match attack was whatever, but again, Lions got a gear change and it was badly needed way, way, way better than what she had previously. Toxic Attraction opened the show with Mandy Rose bragging. The insinuation is that she's not going to defend her title at deadline. Toxic talked about becoming three-time tag team champions. Caden Carter and Katana Chance entered, calling Mandy fake in more ways than one, and saying the others only had equity because of Rose. Toxic said they made the Casey's relevant, so the faces stupidly attacked them two on three and got beat down. There were three times during the show where baby faces attacked heels undermanned, and it was just wild. It really kind of pissed me off a little bit. It's just a classic, dumb, unexplainable baby face move. Mandy was surprisingly strong on the mic here. The problem, though, with the women's tag team division remains lack of teams. It's fine for Toxic to want the titles again, but if there was a full division, there would be no legitimate reason to give them yet another shot. Instead, you kind of shrug your shoulders because who else would really step into that role right now? Even if a couple other teams do exist, none of them are really established and worthy of being tag team title challengers. Later backstage, Lions refused to apologize for going after the Casey's previously and going after their titles, but she did admit that she was wrong about Stark, trusting her, and all that type of stuff. She offered to be the Casey's third should they want to go after Toxic Attraction as a group, and they seemed to buy into it. The match was later set for next week, a six-woman tag team match. Seems weird to put Lions in this when she's feuding with Stark. I would have preferred another wrestler stepping up and getting an opportunity, but maybe the idea is that Stark cost the faces the match and Therefore, the Casey's have to defend the titles again, and Stark has a reason to fight Lions even more than she already does. Isla Dawn got a spooky promo package saying she met Alba's fire with her darkness. She took credit for the technical issues in NXT recently, saying the ethereal was materializing. Dawn said voices in her head pointed her back to Alba, and they would have a lot of fun together. I did watch NXT UK sparingly, just not consistently, so I didn't see much of what Isla did beyond the ring. I saw her wrestling. But I didn't see a lot of her like world building, character building. She's a good wrestler. And seeing this, she clearly has a ton of personality. You fully believed every single thing she put forward here. 
Cora Jade fought Wendy Chu. Cora cut a short promo while backstage walking to the ring. Chu hit her nap time dive. Jade grabbed her weapon, but Chu booted her. Then the referee took the weapon away from Wendy, which was a distraction. That allowed Cora to get Wendy's uh, Yeti, you know, her pink Yeti, and throw Gatorade or some type of liquid in her face. Then Cora hit a spike DDT and got the win in nine minutes. Good heat on Cora throughout the match and after the bell, even more so after Wendy cried in the ring, continuing to sell the bullying angle that they've been telling. The feud is working for both of them, and it's playing perfectly into their respective characters. Also, extra credit to the referee for selling his surprise and confusion by the finish. He's tapping one, two, three. There's water splashing everywhere. He's looking like, what the hell is going on here? It really added to the entire thing. A TikTok was shown of Indy Hartwell confronting Roxanne Perez for not watching her match at a live event. Different vantage points were shown from others' TikToks uh, before it was announced that they're going to fight next week. This has been a relatively intriguing build between a tweener in Hartwell and a babyface in Perez. I'm really curious to see how they book it next week and if both of them wind up in the Iron Survivor Challenge for Deadline because they both really should be in it. And Shawn Michaels is apparently just going to announce all of those people next week. I I thought it would have been cool if Maybe he announced a few and then there were qualifying matches for the other spots, but it is a unique kind of event. So we'll see how it plays out next week. Ivy Nile fought Kiana James. Before the match, James said no one intimidates her and she doesn't count her wins, only losses since she loses so infrequently. Well, you know what? She's three and six on NXT TV this year. So that's hardly accurate. Uh, James hit an interesting backbreaker over her shoulder. Nile went on a run with a hurricanrana and a gut wrench slam. Kiana considered walking away when Fallon Henley got in her way and Niall won with her side bulldog choke in five minutes. Henley attacked immediately after the bell. She chased James through the crowd. I just kind of thought this made Tatum Paxley, who was ringside with Niall, worthless because she could have just gotten in the way. I know James has a storyline with Henley, so they were continuing that, but Paxley was just there and she didn't do shit. That was kind of annoying. Uh, both Niall and James, they did look improved in the ring here. So credit to them for continuing to work hard and clearly getting better. And Niall beating James was obviously the right booking. Uh, The Creed brothers came down immediately after this to praise Ivy before turning their promo into a rant on Indu Share. Niall kept trying to like calm them down while they were doing their rant and keep them focused. Then Julius issued a tag team challenge for deadline. The promo was really nothing, but the off-mic acting and character building between the Creeds and Niall, I thought that was on point. I'm just not sure why this match is going to be on deadline, though. It's barely a TV main event, let alone a premium live event match scheduled multiple weeks in advance. So I don't really understand it. What I will tell you is they better reinforce the ring post because there's going to be some beef flying that night, gentlemen. There's going to be a lot of beef out there. There's a lot of beef out here. For big, meaty men slapping meat. Big, meaty men slapping meat. <laughs> That's what I want. So definitely excited about that eventual match, even if I don't fully understand why they're booking it that way. Uh, Schism sat at a five-person table in the ring with an empty seat in the middle. They talked about everything wrong with the Thanksgiving season, from gluttony to family to Black Friday, as Ava Rain stood up and left the table to grab a fan that was surely planted in the crowd. Uh, Joe Gacy said that this fan would be their bridge to a new holiday, Schism Invictus. As Rain hugged this mark, she started gripping her fingers into his shoulder while demonically staring at the camera as it zoomed into her face. She did this as Gacy said they are no longer inclusive, but divisive. Then he thanked the mark for his sacrifice and put him right through the table with a uranagi. Gacy's slow delivery kind of 
it just irks me. But I gotta say, we're on a month now of schism getting better with each passing week. You know what? Maybe Shawn Michaels deserves like a Booker of the Year award or something because he's taken something that was dreadful trash. And I still hate what they did to our boys, the Grizzled Young Veterans. They killed them. But there's something about this group that's not that bad anymore. It's still not great, but it's not that bad. And I got to give them credit for figuring out a way to pivot, which it has. This is not the same group that it was a month ago, let alone two, three, or four months ago. They have pivoted and something is working here. And I think Ava Rain nailed this segment and deserves a lot of credit. The look that she gave while hugging that dude was awesome. They have clearly changed this direction. Her presence has a massive impact on the way they are being received. For a neophyte, you really got to give her credit. Also, a shout out to the NXT crowd that started chanting sacrifice like two full minutes before Gacy said it. They knew exactly where this was going and they popped huge for the moment. That sold it even better than originally planned. Uh, Scripps made his debut fighting Guru Raj and it was indeed Reggie in a strange mask with black and orange gear. His entrance included this awesome jump off the barricade and he kept like signing in the air like he was holding a pen. It was kind of odd. Scripps hit a cannonball seated senton for the win after a few minutes. And the whole match was him doing crazy athletic moves and counters that were legitimately impressive because Reggie is crazy like that. He left a poem on Raj's chest. The entrance was eye-catching, but the gimmick, man, I don't know what kind of life this is gonna have. The mask was goofy as hell. Maybe it was a nod to something in Cirque du Soleil, but no wrestling fan is gonna know that. And a poet gimmick, in 2022, I mean, we assumed that's what this was going to be, but how does that really work with the vandalism and the threatening messages? It's just all over the place. So I'm glad that Reggie got repackaged and they're doing something different with him, but they really gotta just remix this entire gimmick. There are elements that can work, but in totality, I just don't know that it's going to. Javier Bernal came up with a list of 1,347 people he wanted to wrestle, the big body files, First was Axiom, who's still hurt. 14th was Elon Musk. 68th was Drake. And 250th was retired, but unnamed. And I think they were referring to Christian, given they made a point of saying one more match. Mackenzie Mitchell was exceptional here. No selling Bernal's confident chicken shit heel gimmick. Bernal was great also. This wasn't as strong as the same segment last week, but it hit well enough. And again, Mackenzie Mitchell, honestly, she may be the best backstage interviewer in WWE right now. And she's probably giving Renee Paquette a run for her money as well. Mackenzie is absolutely crushing it. Malik Blade and Idris Anofe were in the parking lot trying to convince Vaughn Wagner for some reason to join their party with Odyssey Jones and other ladies, even though they've never seen eye to eye with him. Vaughn played like he would hang out with them. He instead called them mediocre and losers before attacking them one-on-two and ripping Blade's sweater vest. It took Odyssey forever to get over to them, but this does explain why NXT made a point to feature the sweater vest storyline last week. It's fine as a regular low-card feud and nothing more, but man, Wagner cannot speak. It just does not work. What is the point of having Mr. Stone there to hide his biggest deficiency if he's not going to speak for him? It just doesn't make any sense. And lastly, Charlie Dempsey downplayed new workouts like CrossFit and Power Yoga, saying all he needs is a deck of cards because he trains like legends do while others train to look good for Instagram. He called out faces and heels alike for being weak, 
promising to stretch them all in the ring because professional wrestling is a serious business. The old school gimmick definitely works for him. This vignette hit in every single way. It was really well done. As I said, NXT and AEW, just two really good two-hour shows. AEW Dynamite, of course, this week. We got some great matches on Dynamite with a baller opening segment. NXT, we had a really good main event with Wesley and Carmelo Hayes and a ton of storyline development and character building that really mattered and actually hit. So just four hours of great wrestling TV on Tuesday and Wednesday, I had a lot going on in my life. And sometimes I watch these shows and I'm like, oh man, that was such a waste of time. I had so much more I could have done, a lot I had to accomplish, but I never felt that way. Just, I was really entertained for four straight hours this week. Kudos to both of them for kicking the rest of the week off right. And that is it for today's edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I appreciate all of you listening. As always, a reminder that this show is so on Turkey Day, on Thanksgiving, be thankful for the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Leave those five-star ratings and reviews for us on Apple Podcasts and the five-star rating on Apple as well. Tell everyone why you love the show and tell them why they should subscribe. The ratings, the reviews, they help us immensely. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, pre- and post-show polls, head of pay-per-views and premium live events like Survivor Series War Games this weekend, and a live Twitter Spaces pre-show before Survivor Series War Games. You can join us. You can comment, ask questions. Just listen to our final picks and predictions all by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Do not miss the WWE Survivor Series War Games Ultimate Preview already in our feed. And do not forget about our WWE Survivor Series War Games Instant Analysis coming up as soon as that show goes off the air Saturday night. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Once again, have a very happy Thanksgiving and a happy Black Friday as well. This is the Silver King signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.